Welcome back to the Strength Podcast. I'm your host, Conquer the Gauntlet Pro, Evan Preparis. And surprisingly, I have Brenna back for another episode, two episodes in a row. Brenna, welcome back again. Yeah, man, we're on a streak, two in a row. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. <laughs> yeah. So before we get to today's guest, a uh, quick word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Atomic Climbing Holds. I'm actually sitting in my Atomic Climbing Holds like hoodie, which is like a really lightweight hoodie. That's actually kind of nice for warm-up in the winter when it's like cold in the climbing gym or the ninja gym and you want to get the blood flowing. But other than that, Atomic makes some great climbing holds, whether that be for a rock wall in your personal garage, hanging from your rig in your garage or in your backyard, or just taking it to the gym. I use them instead of conventional like pulley attachments at the gym, and people always give me weird looks like why I'm doing single-arm rows with a banana, but um, that's part of the fun. So, Brenna, give me some thoughts on Atomic. Well, first I want to say way to join the cool club with the hoodie because I've had that from the get-go since Atomic is a CTG protein sponsor. I got that from the start and love it because it's the perfect weight, and it's just really cool because I like being able to wear stuff and represent. But their actual gear and climbing um, items are awesome. I personally, along with rig holds that Evan was mentioning, I they have a great um, – Hangboard. It's got different grip holds. You can use it for regular pull-ups. You can do, you know, work on your fingertip pull-ups and different crazy things like that for your grip strength. I also have their peg holds that you basically can kind of create your own pegboard to train on. So you can use wooden pegs to insert in the holes, or they're also round and textured for grip that you can kind of practice gripping on, like, balls, big bulbs, if it makes sense, like on a wall. So awesome things. Check it out. Make sure when you go online and order, check out their free holds that you can do every day. Like um, it'll give you a random sample of different holds for free when you make an order. So yeah, and that's awesome. That's in the deals of the day section. And they also just released a line of balance products. So that's going to be coming out soon. If you want to hear more about them, you can go to Mud Run Guide and search for Atomic. I wrote like three or four different reviews on them. And there'll be a balance review coming out soon. Speaking of Atomic and Atomic Climbing Holds, I have the better half of Team Atomic here, Wesley Kerr. Wesley, welcome back to the show. It's good to be back. For those of you who don't remember Wesley, he was on the episode last year after World's Toughest Mudder when we were Team Merrill. And we talked with Miles Keller about World's Toughest Mudder 2017 and what the last year in Vegas was like. If you want to listen to that episode, I think it's pretty good. You can go back and listen. But today we're going to be talking about what it was like to change venues to go to World's Toughest Mudder in Atlanta in 2018, which was a little bit chilly. So, um, yeah. Let's, Just a little nippy. Yeah. yeah. We're going to switch this up today, guys, because normally Evan leads the – the show with all the questions and insight, but he is kind of technically the guest today with Wesley because they formed the awesome duo of Team Atomic at World's Toughest Mudder. So I'm going to try to give some questions for them and see what we want to find out about Atlanta this year um, for 2018. I mean, so to start it off, we just, again, this episode is brought to you by Atomic Climbing Holds, so you kind of know a little bit about them. Um, but for you two guys, 
I know this is the second year y'all have teamed together, but kind of explain for those that didn't listen last year, how did the two of y'all form your team? Like, why are the two of you guys teammates? Back in 2000, at the end of 2000, at the end of 2016, started 2017, Wesley, I, I'm not sure why he asked, but he asked if I wanted to be teammates. And normally I would say no to anyone that requests to be a teammate because this is my biggest event of the year, right? Like everything I do in training kind of revolves and leads up to this single point. So I, I'm really hesitant to put my hands, like my success into someone else's hands. But the thing about Wesley is he's super consistent. So, you know, on the good years, he was like top seven. On his bad year, he was like 20th, uh, which is pretty much lines up with the same with me. So, like, you know, if I'm having a really good year, I'll finish, you know, like I think my best individual finish is eighth. And my worst individual finish is like 22nd or something like that. So um, I knew he was consistent, which is real important for ultra distance obstacle course racing because there's just so many variables. So as the kind of rates got closer and we were both in good health, I said yes, and uh, yeah, kind of rest is history. Wesley, because I don't know your history as much as I do Evans, I personally, again, because like this I know it's his biggest event, was pretty surprised last year when he said he was doing a team. So in your response, I mean, what have you always run individual for World Toughest, and that was your first year last year doing team? And like what was your mentality behind deciding to do team and going asking Evan? Uh, so that was my first race doing a team of anything, really. Um, I usually am very individual because it is very difficult to find someone that r- runs as fast as me um, for that long period of time. Um, there's usually people above me that are pros and then people below me that I beat consistently. So it's really hard to find someone that's somewhere around where I am. And Evan is a good person that sits around there. Um, I was thinking that, um, the individual competition was getting super, super competitive, um, and there's no way that I could really get to 100 miles, so I wanted to see, is there a new challenge that I could do, or something interesting that I could do, um, that was a little bit different that didn't involve me having to do the training to get to 100 miles. Right. Um, so I thought about doing team. Um, I am never interested in team relay. Um, Concur. So <laughs> I think uh, the joy of 24 hours is being out there 24 hours. So I wanted to find someone that was similar to me and had a good outlook that we might be able to team up and do some something interesting. Um, last year, it worked out pretty well. Um, we got second. Um, most of the time, we were pretty in sync with each other. Um, I made Evan do a lot more running than Evan was going to do otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is the nature of the beast. Um, and this year... Um, I took, like, six months off running, did a lot of CrossFit. Um, In between last year and this year, um, I'm doing sort of, like, the most time-intensive part of my professional training. Um, So I was thinking for this year, um, I'm not going to go as far um, as last year because my running is not as good, but my obstacles are better because I did a lot of CrossFit. Um, So... I think it'd be interesting to see 
can I keep up with Evan in terms of the obstacles? And I think with the toughness that I know that both of us have, um, Atlanta is going to be very tough, and it's mostly who can stay out there and keep on trucking at a good pace. Um, and I think I had a lot of confidence in Evan that he could do that and we could do that together and then see what other people figure out. Very cool. Well, I want to give a spoiler alert <laughs> for those that don't know. Um, like you said, last year, y'all came in second place with 80 miles for the um, all-men team. So, spoiler alert, 2018 World's Toughest Mudder. Like you said, I think y'all did something pretty awesome, and that was taking the top spot, first place for the males team with 75 miles on a very tough new venue, tough course. So, congratulations first we haven't said that yet so that's amazing um i've been rooting for evan for years to get up on that podium last year was awesome you guys as a team so this year all i did was you know follow along waiting for results from you so i was so proud of that for you guys um so getting into it talking about comparing kind of 75 versus 80 miles from year to year that became i my guess is the change of venue so this was the first year that it was um outside of Atlanta, Georgia, which is funny because everybody thought hot Atlanta, but of course it's November. So let's get into the first factor I think might have been the biggest factor for the new venue, um, weather played into it. So both you guys have done Vegas and the weather there. Um, I guess starting with you, Evan, I mean, y'all can kind of tell me, for those that don't know and didn't pay attention to all coverage, <laughs> what happened with the weather in Atlanta for you? <laughs> Yeah, so the weather in Atlanta was cold is pretty much the <laughs> the highlight. Uh, so the weather started at 43 degrees about um, at noon, and it actually warmed up until just before sunset to like 48 degrees. And then once the sun set, it plummeted, like it dropped real quick, like I'm talking within 30 minutes, like down to like 39. And then it kept getting colder all the way down to some somewhere near or below 32 degrees. Um, it had to be below 32 because things were icing over, like obstacles were straight up freezing not like the water in the water pits but the tops of like the wooden walls and the overhangs and stuff were getting iced over and you know me and wesley we, we play high risk high reward so if you run shirtless which sounds crazy you get you know when you're in the water it feels just as cold as if you were wearing whatever compression gear or um, maybe like a light neoprene but the the difference is when you get out of the water, your skin will dry, and if you're wearing like a compression top, this, the compression top won't dry. So you're wearing like a wet rag the entire time. So the two of us essentially ran shirtless for about 20 miles um, while the sun was still up, and we're just kind of just putting out a, a fast pace to stay warm. Like that was honestly my my primary reason for running for most of the race was uh, trying not to die from hypothermia. So, <laughs> so like, I, like I know there was parts where, where we'd start. Me and Wesley would start separating um, due to pace differences. And like, honestly, the only reason I was running was because I was like, I was cold, and I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to succumb to the cold. But yeah, yeah. Wesley, where um, are you located? Like, where are you from, and where's home? Um, so I live in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. So cold's not like your forte, really, either. Uh, cold is. I would say cold is not something I'm used to on a daily basis, um, but part of my history is that the I've only done one more Worlds than Evan has, and the one Worlds that I did was um, in New Jersey in 2012, which is the only Worlds that is actually colder than the Worlds this year. Um, All right. Okay. And 
in 2012, we started at like 33, and then we sat around 24 for most of the week. Um, I don't. For those, we were sitting at home watching like this past year, and I just kept seeing photos and videos of like Instagram story of frost on the tents and people's bibs that they put in their tent that were like frozen to the back of the chair. And I just kept telling myself, I want to go to this event. I want to do 24 hours, but not in the cold. I just, I, I can't do it. I won't do it. So, so I mean, would y'all say? The next question I basically want to know about is the terrain of that venue compared to Vegas. But, like, do you already know, can you say that the difference in your mileage, would y'all attest to it being the weather and the cold factor? Oh, yeah. It's uh, the weather and the cold factor. The the terrain was actually substantially easier, I would say. Um, the main struggle with the terrain is that there were periods that were downhill. Usually you would rack up huge uh, huge speed and huge mileage on the downhill portions, but they were a little slippery because uh, of the mud and the marshes. Um, as compared to Vegas, where there's more uphill, downhill, there's more elevation gain, but you're mostly on trails that you don't have to worry about your footing too much. There's maybe some rocks, um, but you can blast on those hills at whatever pace you feel like. Whereas in Atlanta, we were going around... Um, different water pits and different slippery portions. Um, over laps over laps, we would do things like figure out what is the most stable track to take through the muddy portion. Um, so um, I, in particular, remember one of the the downhill portions in the back of the course, where it was like, okay, this puddle you go to the left, this puddle you go to the right, and this is the order of the puddles. So. <laughs> And so what about that mud? I mean, I'm, I started my OCR journey and career in Atlanta and here, Georgia with the, I don't call it mud. We call it Georgia red clay. Um, was it as bad as what I've seen before? Like just really thick and they had it everywhere or I mean, like, come on, get, give us some muddy details. <laughs> uh, we didn't get down in the mud all that often. Um, mud mile was, uh, Stable throughout. Um, one of the things with 24-hour courses is mud mile, which is a series of mud hills with water in the in the middle that you have to crawl between. Um, in places like Vegas with sedimentary rock, the mole hills start getting lower and lower and lower, and as you build uh, paths between them. But in Atlanta, that clay is clay, and it stays the same for the most of the race. So we have. Those hills that we just had to go over the same way, the same time, uh, and they took a lot of time. Other than one mile, mostly it was just we're running on Atlanta trails and like fire roads in the back. Um, you can tell I now live in California when I call them fire roads if they're big enough for a car to go on. <laughs> That's unfortunate about the fires right now. Um, <laughs> Anyways, I guess, yeah, Evan, I mean, you're used to, you've raced out. Have, Wesley, have you raced in Georgia and Atlanta before? Uh, this is my first time to Atlanta. Okay, awesome. Well, welcome again from someone that calls this is my second, third, fourth, fifth home around here. So um, <laughs> I knew it very well, and I love it. was sad to miss it. Um, so, Evan, share with us the new venue brought and every year World's Toughest Mudder is kind of the time when Tough Mudder debuts new obstacles that they're testing for the next year, and they also kind of bring back old obstacles, stuff like that. 
um, the one I'm very familiar with and that everybody saw pictures of and the most talk about, I'd say, for 2018 was Stacks. So do you want to share with us a little bit about Stacks, what that was, and kind of some of the other new obstacles they all experienced out on course? Yeah, so Stacks was essentially a bunch of contain- shipping containers that they had stacked up against each other or on top of each other. So it created about like a 37-foot cliff jump. So instead of having the cliff in Vegas, they essentially made a man-portable cliff. And they dug a big deep pit, and it was, yeah. I mean, you climbed up it, and you jumped off. I know pre-race people were talking about, and I even mentioned this on one of the podcasts that, like, you know, might it might actually be faster to go around and take the penalty because you have to actually climb up this thing. But after seeing the penalty and um, like how much effort it took to climb up, it, it absolutely was not right. Like it was faster to go off the cliff or the stacks, whatever you want to call it. So the funny part of that is they had, I think they had the actual quote-unquote, the stacks obstacle in, was it uh, Massachusetts this year? Yeah, Boston. Boston, yeah. And it, but it wasn't, it wasn't a jump. It was you climb on top of the shipping containers, essentially go across a bridge, um, which is a shipping container, and then you go down a big cargo net. And what was funny was after that race, I specifically said to my dad, I was like, I bet you this is what they do for the cliff. This is what replaces the cliff. And I, di- <laughs> I didn't think they would go four containers high. I thought they would go like two or three at most but uh yeah they went four high it was i mean it it was high and i thought getting up there you'd be more scared because you could like you know when you're at the cliff in vegas you're essentially on ground level so like behind you and to your sides is level ground with the stacks i mean you're on top when you look around you there's there's a giant drop in all directions and although once i got up there i mean i didn't really look around at all like i couldn't even tell you what the view was from up there besides like the, the platform directly at my feet so either of y'all i mean either of y'all have issues with that or a height fear or anything uh i don't like height um <laughs> uh, i can actually tell you a little bit um it was interesting and in that you it was placed in a forest and when you got on the platform you looked out onto like a big field with nothing in it um so it's really just like you can't stare at something on the other side it's just you and something that's going to drop quite a lot. Um, <laughs> I do not enjoy heights. Um, I tolerate the cliff and I tolerate the stacks. Uh, so much that um, the first time we went over, um, I yelled out, oh, shit. Um, when, and when I came up from the water, I had a, one of the lifeguards swimming at me frantically. And I was <laughs> like, oh, no, 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 I'm fine. <laughs> You panicked them. They got worried. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's good to know they were on top of, you know, they were paying attention. They are looking out for you, so that's reassuring. Awesome to hear for those that are scared. They're there for you. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and I'll say this. If you if you come to World's Toughest Mudder and you're not a fan of heights and you're whatever you're terrified, like, you got to go off it at least once, you know? Like, I don't know. I, like, you just have to me, you just have to go on, off it at least once, especially, you know, People, t- people are going to show, be like, oh, watch the CBS coverage. Watch, you know, check out this Facebook video. Like, don't be showing those videos if you didn't go off it. You know, like, you got to go off it. It's part of the event. It's part of what makes Tough Mudder what it is, right? They play on your fears. You know, f- you know, claustrophobia, there's that, you know, some of them are really tight spaces through some of those tunnels. The electricity, fear of heights, you know. I mean, I wrote a couple of articles on Mudder and Guide about this. One of them was called Tough Mudder Fear Of. It specifically addresses that. But I've also have another one coming out um, comparing Vegas versus Atlanta's World's Toughest Mudder, uh, like I've done every year for the past like four years, uh, except it was 
Vegas to Vegas previous years. So, the, and I, yeah. I agree. I think you have to like go for it your first time, and then if you're gonna take the penalty after, fine. You know, yeah. not gonna hate on that. Whatever, not gonna judge. But if you just completely like, nope, not doing it. You don't even get up there and like brace yourself and at least get to the edge. I mean, come on, like just do it one time. That's what it's about. I mean, that's what you paid this hundreds of dollars for your ticket plus hundreds of dollars for your everything else and you know do it go all in you committed to it that far so and i'll say uh, this i dread going off of it like you know as the as the it opens at midnight typically the what they've done the last couple of years and as midnight approaches i dread going off of it but then after the first jump i'm always like wow that's not so bad and then it's not a big deal after that uh, i don't really cons- think about it too much but yeah yeah sense. um my my story behind uh, heights at at Tough Mudder, um, I would say it is a good idea to go over it, but I understand people that want to go around. Um, when I started with Tough Mudder, they had uh, walk the plank, which is like a 12-foot jump, and I hesitated on that. And then over time, the jumps got higher, and you did things while you were jumping, like uh, double rainbow and uh, king of swingers. And just by doing it over and over again and forcing myself to, my fear has definitely decreased. So if you are going to be fearful fearful of the stacks, try to do more things where you're jumping off of things. They won't be pleasant, but you can tolerate it. And before you do a cliff jump that's uh, over about 10 meters tall, you probably should watch some YouTube videos about the bad things that can happen. So, <laughs> yeah, do that. <laughs> Lessons we learned here. This is, you know, not just a recap, but it's informative too. So that's the point. <laughs> yeah, I will, I will say. So some of the other obstacles they debuted were one called the Gauntlet, which was a. It was actually four of their obstacles mashed up into one. So it was a balance beam into basically like a version of Kong. So essentially, it was ring. It was like three or four rings and then two ropes. So like a rig over water, which then went into just the tip, which is their like. You hang from your fingertips going sideways, and then there's like a, a two pegs and a two a trailer hitches you can cross, and then more hanging from your fingertips. And then it was basically, was it called low belly? Oh, I can't even remember the name of that last one is. You're basically in like a Superman plank position moving sideways. So they took four obstacles they already had that we've seen before and mashed them into one giant one, uh, which I thought was really cool. Not crazy about it for like a world's toughest event because people. You know, I think people quickly hit a point of failure. So, I'd, I think I would personally, I would rather see those four obstacles broken into four different parts of the course uh, rather than right. all smashed up into one. So it, it'll be it'll be cool. Like I hope they can keep that gauntlet for uh, toughest mutter, and I hope they keep it for tougher mutter, the ten mile yeah. and the twelve hour one. So, yeah, um, one really cool obstacle that I think they've been playing with for a long time, trying to figure out how to make it work. It's called Leap of Faith. Um, Leap of Faith um, originally made its appearance at Worlds, I want to say, 2013, um, and it was fun, but <laughs> had lots of problems. Um, they've modified it since. Well, describe the 13 and variant for people. So the 13 variant was it was the signature of it, uh, obstacle of that year. Um, where you climb up onto like a 12 or 15 foot um, platform, think walk the plank, um, and then you jump out onto a cargo net slash with a like foam thing on top of it. 
essentially you throw your body on this thing and see if you stick, and then you climb up off of it. If you miss, um, then you fall into water. Um, if you hit it and then slide off, you fall into water. Um, if you hit it the wrong way, you do things like break your clavicle and break your rib. Break an ankle. I, uh, I heard it was just like destroying people on the course. <laughs> I did not have to do that one. I, was, I, I didn't go that year. But. Uh, yeah, I also did not go that year. That's the one year since 2012 that I have not done the done World Toughest. Um, this is uh, much more reasonable. Um, so for this one, you have a cargo net um, that's maybe shoulder width a little bit f further across, and it's hanging six or seven feet out from a platform. And that platform you can run up, it's um, the same level that you are. And you jump out onto the, and grab that cargo net, which is hanging. So you grab the hanging cargo net, um, and you swing for a little bit, and you climb up the cargo net to a pole at the top, and the pole uh, goes diagonally down to the other side. Um, People that did Worlds last year in 2017 will remember Rope-A-Dope, um, where instead of a cargo net, they had a single rope um, that you climbed up and then slid down. So it's sort of Leap of Faith is a modified Rope-A-Dope. Yeah. That's the cover um, of Mudrun Guide's Ultra OCR Bible. That should give you a visual. Oh, yeah. Rope-A-Dope. Now, now I got it. Um, I think it's a really simple obstacle in that it's simple to build, but it's super fun because you have to get over the, like, oh, God, I have to go fast enough to jump. Um, and then once you jump out there, it's not too bad to grab it. You just need to have a decent amount of grip strength and trust your body. And then it takes some energy to get, get up and over, but it's sort of a, an appropriate amount of energy. It's not a particularly hard obstacle. It's not a particularly easy obstacle, in my opinion. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. And when you do the running jump, I mean, it's not like a very clear ledge. Like it's a, you know, rubber padding that goes down over the edge of like kind of like a muddy pit there. So there's not like a clear edge. So that's what I find kind of scary. Well, not scary, but like a little bit intimidating, right? Because you're running and there's not like, it's like, do I step here or do I step six inches forward and worry about slipping into <laughs> the water? So I think I thought they did a good job with that. I really liked it. Um, they also had Funky Monkey. Yeah revolution as usual so the monkey bars up and into the rotating wheels and one of the things they did different this year was they did the golden carabiner route so that they actually made a couple of the obstacles harder in the middle of the night and if you could do them you'd get a golden carabiner and that lets you skip a whole bunch of obstacles on a future lap so that was kind of cool the funky monkey variant essentially was um they essentially covered up the monkey bars and they had like probably six or eight hanging uh, vertical ropes that were short, you know, maybe 12 inches long with a knot at the bottom that were kind of nylon. So you essentially had to do like nunchuck uphill grip on the ropes to the rotating wheels to get across. The first, though, the only time I tried, I made it up the ropes and I got to the wheels, and uh, some of them are a little icy. So I did not make it across. But yeah. Also, for the like interrupting on our obstacle talk, the Golden Carabiner thing that was new this year, um, how did that work as a team? Like, did only one of you have to, like, if, say, Evan, you completed the harder version, you got the Golden Carabiner, and y'all could both use it and both skip things? Or did both you and Leslie have to complete the harder version to get that Golden Carabiner? They never really specified. What we were thinking is that as long as the team as a whole has two, then we could use them. 
Um, we didn't have to use that technicality because we got golden carabiners for hitting 25 miles, and then we did not uh, get golden carabiners uh, for completing obstacles. So, uh, yeah. And were you only allowed, like, the one golden carabiner, or could you earn more? Um, so you could earn a golden carabiner from hitting 25 miles, and then you could also earn golden carabiners by completing these upgraded obstacles. Um, okay. So and they didn't then, say that, like, if you hit 25 and you got the gold, you didn't, it didn't matter if you did the obstacles. Like, you could yeah. get both ways. Gotcha. Yeah. And um, then did you turn in that golden carabiner, like, at the end of a lap before you started another one? And they were like, okay, now you get to skip stuff? Or was it, like, partially through the course you had an option to skip stuff? So partially through the course, there was a turn-off that said gold, golden carabiner loop, and you gave your golden carabiner to a volunteer that was there. Um, the strategy of using the golden carabiner was uh, important because um, we got 25 at like 5 p.m. or something when the event started at noon. Uh, and our strategy was the worst time of day is right before the sun comes up. It is the coldest. You are the most tired. Uh, you don't have any faith that the event will ever end. Um, so we wanted to use our golden carabiner at that point in time. So we saved ours until a lap that started at, like, 4.30 or 5, um, and it gave us a nice little break from the um, the trudging through obstacles. We got to skip the stacks um, that lap, um, and that worked out really nice because we were super cold and super unhappy at that point, and then once the sun came up, it's like, yay, we can strip clothes off, we can move faster. Awesome. Well, that... So you kind of led into my question was going to be, so the Golden Carabiners and strategy and, like, a game plan that you all had when you started type of thing. Um, you all mentioned that you already knew who could keep up with one another and from the previous year that you were going to push Evan on running, but this year it was going to be kind of vice versa. So did you all talk and say just, like, you're going to run and see how you felt out on course and kind of play it by ear and make your strategy as you went? Or, you know, did you start off with a strategy and, like, what was it kind of? Walk us through your beginning plan for the event to get you to first. So our beginning plan was that um, it's going to get super cold, it's going to get super unpleasant, and everyone's going to go super slow. So before we get there, let's burn hot. Um, and Evan sort of wanted to see if we could get a green bib. So we started with minimal clothing and said, let's burn hot, stay warm by running faster. Um, and see where we can go. And then once we had our wetsuits on, we sort of just try to trudge forward and keep a consistent pace. So Evan said earlier that we got like 20 laps before we, uh, 20 miles before we got our wetsuits on. Pretty sure we actually got 30. Um, we did six laps before 6 p.m. Did we? Um, so I thought we put a, I thought we put a neoprene top or we put something on. I thought it, I thought it was between miles 20 and, like, at mile 20 for the next lap. Uh, I know we ran I one lap with, like, essentially a shirt on, and then we switched to full wetsuit after that. So I thought we... Oh, I think I put, like, a windbreaker. Yeah, you, I put a windbreaker on. You put a windbreaker you put, on. You might have put neoprene. Yeah, I did a, I did a Neptune and a frog skins. Because um, I was... Yeah. I, I actually get colder... About the last two years, I've gotten colder before you did. So... Uh, which is um, not predictable based on where we live. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, once we hit, so, uh, for people looking for context, um, six laps before 6 p.m. means we were doing, um, less than a, 
on average, less than an hour per lap. If you do that over the whole time, then you hit 120 miles. <laughs> um, we clearly were not planning on no, hitting No, that was never miles. part of the plan. <laughs> the, I mean, the plan was to log some miles early when you're not – like, the wetsuit is heavy. Like, when, go rinse out your wetsuit and then pick it up. The thing's heavy. It's like 10 pounds, 15 pounds. Like, it's – so we wanted to just log some good miles while the sun was up, while we were wearing minimal clothing, carrying minimal weight, and get like a strong lead, and then kind of just hold it from there. Um, in lap six, we actually lapped second place. Um, we saw three AM waterfalls, um, who, uh, as a point of history, won the 2012 event. That was the first event that I did, um, and they were going slower than us because we were lapping them. Um, but it was very interesting to see that strategy and go, okay, that is a successful strategy so far. Let's see how much we can hold on. Um, and then through the night, once we got our wet suits on, it was keep a consistent pace, try to run the downhills, um, and then just not pause too much, get through the obstacles efficiently, um, which worked out pretty well. Um, probably around mile 65, 70-ish, um, I started having some shin splint problems, um, so I was having a lot of pain in my right foot um, that was slowing us down a decent amount, and then we were slowly learning that we were something like two to three laps ahead of second. Oh, wow. Um, but we were also learning that we were getting potentially competitive for individuals, and if we placed in top five for individuals, we count as individuals. We take their money is basically uh, it. Yeah. So I was like, in the middle of the event, I was like, like I think we actually hit fifth place at one point, you know. Um, and, yeah. and I was like, I was like, let's do it. Let's, let's, <laughs> like, like it, it fired me up even more. I was ready to, you know, I was ready to go all in at that point. Um, there was one time that the results worked for me that I was able to see because most of my results were coming from um, people in the world's toughest community, like Facebook page, that were getting it from whoever, and they were saying like Team Atomic's still in first, and just word of mouth. And then I finally got the event or the results to load, and I at one point saw like y'all's individual ranking, and just thought, holy crap! I was like, they're like ranking for the top of individuals. Like I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> So it's kind of cool and really crazy to, to so, know y'all were doing that. So the, awesome. the benefit of running with someone is you have someone to pace off of and so kind of someone to talk to. So that's nice. The downside is when one of you fails an obstacle, you both fail an obstacle, right, regardless of the outcome. So that makes it yeah. a little more challenging. And then the other kind of part that makes it challenging is your ups and the other person's ups may not be at the same time. So you may be feeling great for a lap and the other guy may be feeling down for a lap. And then the next lap it might be reversed – so essentially you're moving more like at the slowest pace versus at the fastest pace of the two of you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. I might have been able to get 80 if I was by myself. Um, I'm questionable about that. Um, I'm pretty confident that Evan, if he was by himself, definitely could have gotten 80. Maybe he even had a shot at 85. Yeah. Wow. We had plenty of time to go back out for 80 um, on that last lap. And we were coming around like that last obstacle and Buzzy's like, He's like, let's just call it. We've won. And I was like, all right, that's fine. So, um, yeah. I think that happened a lot this year with a lot of people that, you know, realized their position and that it was locked in. And they're like, well, we could get this much more, but what's the point? It's cold and miserable. So, yeah. So, um, yeah. with I yours, 
Well, I'll just come back to your strategy and stuff real quick and your, like, game plan. I know Evan's usual strategy is pit breaks. He's not – he doesn't really go in his pit for long or take, like, big breaks or anything. Did y'all stick with that this year? You know, how did your pit play out for you with your crew and everything? Yeah, that is um, also my strategy. Um, My opinion is that um, every, say, 15, 20 minutes you're in the pit cumulative, that's a mile you could have run. So you spend as little time in the pit as possible. Um, I haven't gone over our pit times yet, but I think last year when we ran 80 miles, so that's like 14 or 15 pit breaks, we had a total pit time of something like half an hour. So oh, And that counts. The wet, most of that's the wetsuit change, which is like 10 minutes. You know, the, the yeah. wetsuit change takes forever, I feel like. That's impressive. That's very little time. Um. Yeah. Well, that kind of, you'll keep leading into everything I want to know, so this is exciting, because your pit breaks, so I was going to ask both of you guys kind of, like, your go-to favorite must-have gear and nutrition for those that are listening that, you know, are new to this, and obviously good ideas for them, also what works for winning. Um, If you take very little pit breaks and your time total for the entire event is, what, like 30 minutes, what are you guys doing for nutrition out there that doesn't take a lot of time and effort because obviously you're fueling yourself properly, but very minimal time spent. Uh, Evan, you want to go? Sure. So I, I use Hammer Nutrition products, uh, not only because they sponsor me, but I was actually using them in 2014 before they sponsored me. So I basically take a gel at the mid, two gels at the midway point of every lap, which is right before the water station. And then every time I come through the pit, I take Endurolite capsules, Hammer Nutrition, and a drink called Perpetuum. It's a fat-carb-protein blend. Um, so the idea is you want to use every system that you produce energy available, right? So you, you want to use fats because they're burning slow. You want to use a mix of, like, high-glycemic, low-glycemic, complex, simple carbs because some of those are going to burn faster and kind of at the more of a medium speed. And then protein because if you don't have any protein over, you know, an event that's two-plus hours in length, your body will actually start taking amino acids from your muscles for fuel and you're essentially eating your own engine at that point so i fuel almost exclusively off that and actually i actually switched to solid food at one point because when the the temperature started getting into 32 degrees the bottles of perpetuum were cold it was like drinking ice water and that was making <laughs> that was making me cold so i didn't want to like keep drinking this like ice cold liquid so i actually switched to I started eating like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at that point, uh, which we had pre-prepared uh, by my pit crew, and I was eating like Oreos and some other crap. But I prefer to use like actual stuff that's designed for endurance racing, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. And then I, the other thing that was kind of weird is I usually start taking caffeine about halfway through the event, and I had a couple of Hammer Nutrition gels with some caffeine in them, but I didn't – like normally I'm, I like down a Red Bull at some point because I'm feeling exhausted, and I had – very little caffeine during this event, and I felt I felt good the entire time. Huh. Um, I would <laughs> I would say my conclusion with caffeine is the same. Of I usually have an option for caffeine. I essentially don't know why I do that anymore, um, because I always think that oh, near the end of the race, it's nice to get a nice little pick me up to make me feel faster, even if I'm not actually faster. Um, but Near the end of the race, I also have so much adrenaline and so much momentum that I don't need it, so I don't ask for it, and I don't mess up my electrolytes with it because caffeine is also a diuretic. Right. Um, my plan is very similar to Evan's. Um, 
except they're not sponsored by Hammer. I'm actually not sponsored by a nutrition company. Um, I um, People might know that I use Tailwind in beef jerky. Um, so Tailwind is another um, electrolyte drink that is built for um, endurance racing. Um, I had a similar problem where the bottles that we were using to fill, uh, fill the Tailwind um, partway through the night, um, the first thing I would do when I would drink is I would get all the ice that was built up on the top of the bottle and I would spit it out and then I would drink the tailwind because <laughs> there was actually a layer of ice on top of my water bottle. Um, so that so tailwind provides electrolytes. Um, I would also supplement with at least one salt pill per lap and then have beef jerky for that protein and fats um, and a, additional salt. Um, I have learned over time that um, people tend to overhydrate and undersalt. So I have slowly started doing more and more salt in my um, endurance racing, and I've noticed less and less swelling of my extremities. So um, I am a pretty salt-heavy person. Nice. I would have to say, just from an outsider that looks and view the whole weekend and everything leading up to it. Both of y'all sound almost on like the very minimal side for your nutrition compared to what I see other people pack and prepare. It's kind of funny, but if you're listening, I would take some advice from the champions here and um, kind of go their route. So check out Hammer Nutrition and Beef Jerky. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, I think as a new endurance athlete, I overpacked food because you're like, oh, what am I going to be hungry for? What am I going to, you know, what am I going to want in the middle of the race? Because sometimes your, your stomach's not feeling it. And you know, I've done enough of these races where, I mean, I just I just know how my body reacts. And, you know, as opposed to kind of blindly going by what I feel at that exact moment, you know, my like my body is at this point is trained. To, that's what I consume. I mean, that's what I consume for OCR America. That's what I consume for Endure the Gauntlet. That's what I consume for BFX. Toughest motors, right? Like when you add up my cumul- cumulative amount of ultra OCR I've done, it comes out to 18 days, right? Like 18 consecutive days of racing when you add it all up. So, you know, practice makes perfect. So the uh... – Well, I was going to say, we're talking to a couple veterans here. So it's one of those, like you said, what you think your body wants and is going to want at that event. You guys have it down to the science of what your body needs and what you know works for you opposed to what you might be like, say, quote-unquote, craving or thinking you want out there to keep you going. So, And and I'll um, I'll also say I I always pack at least one crave food, right? So, like, I pack – Oreos for World's Toughest Motor. Double stuff Oreos. I never eat them any other time except after the race or during the race. And that's like my if if my stomach starts acting up, which it never has, you know, that's what I'm going to go to to make sure I actually have something in my stomach to keep eating. Mm. I would say after 12 or 13 hours, your tastes change. So as a trial and error thing, you figure out what you can still eat at that point. Um, and every person's diet is going to be a little bit different because every person has different preferences and different GI systems. Um, so we have figured out what makes us tick. I guarantee if you talk to like 10 different other endurance athletes that have done as much as we have, they have, uh, 10 or 12 different plans. Yeah, it's definitely so hard to listen, but it's good. It's good to get the ideas. And like you said, trial and error, test it out, see what works for you because it's one of those things when I see people ask like, about OCR shoes or OCR nutrition. It's like everybody's stomach is different. Everybody's foot is different. So what works for Evan doesn't work for Wesley and vice versa. So it's like 
good to hear and take advice, but then also do your own thing. So kind of cool. Um, again, I guess we've covered your nutrition and your strategy. Um, I would say very important for this year, but again, y'all have it down to a science what works in any go-to year. I mean, I personally, from the two of you know, Wesley is known for his red marina compression leggings and Evan, I mean, I know a lot of your gear that you like, your Neptune um, shirt for warmth and frog skin. So are those still what y'all stuck with and are going to continue to go with for your endurance events, guys? Yeah, I've worn marina shorts for the last two years at World's Toughest Mudder. The only two years out of the five I've done it where I had zero chafing. Like, I mean, and I've had some bad chafing. In 2016, I remember getting in the shower and being, like, in pain because it was literally, like, chafing all over all over my boy parts down there like all over the <laughs> all over it right and uh the last two years no problem like i put on the marina and i grab a lot of vaseline and just kind of smear it all over the place you know get any anywhere there's gonna be skin touching down there and zero problems with that i don't change socks during the event i don't think there's any point your feet are gonna get wet again so i typically either wear mud gear or i have hammer nutrition uh essentially with, with their logo on it socks so one of those two and then you know bleg mitts huge fan of those if you haven't seen they're coming out with the new bleg mitt which is three millimeter which is one millimeter thicker than the older version the two millimeter which is what i was selling last year i'm going to be selling those off my website teamstrengthspeed.com so make sure you pick those up they should be available early 2019 and they'll ship from the u.s so you don't have to pay for shipping from australia they're also like fleece lines so they you know, Deanna Blegg, previous World Toughest Motor Champion, has put a lot of research and trial and error into them. So I expect those to be great. But I mean, other than that, you know, when once it gets cold, I put on a full wetsuit. I have like a triathlon wetsuit because I, I like, I think it, it has different thickness depending on where it is on your body. So that's why I kind of use that. And then the big thing I do is I change hats and like buffs every lap. So I have like a dry, something that's dry on my head at the end of every, at the start and, and, or the start of every lap. It eventually gets wet, but you know, I think that makes a difference for me, at least psychologically it does. Yeah. Um, I have, I am known for my Marina, Marina sports, uh, stuff. Um, and I agree that like the past two or three years that I've been sponsored by them, uh, chafing has basically not been a thing. I actually wear less gear below my waist than I used to because I used to need so much more other things like calf sleeves and like, the higher socks to get good compression where I needed it. And now it's just like I throw on these sites and all of the compression, all the places, and none of the chafing. Um, and they're beautiful and red. Can we just say that? I mean, come on. You know, it's red tights. Let's stick together here. <laughs> yeah. Um, as a brief shout-out for sponsorship stuff, uh, if you use Dr. Red Tights, you get 20% off any Marina order. Um other things that I use during the event is uh, trail toes. So trail toes for my feet, trail toes for my manly places, um, for just lubrication that is not the same as Vaseline. Why, why you got to use manly place when I use boy parts? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, keep going. Sorry. Um, so trail toes, it's, I used to use a lot of Vaseline, um, and then it gets pretty oily. Trail toes, I think, goes on a little bit easier, and I think it lasts a little bit longer and doesn't stain your clothes as much. Um, so I've done more and more of that stuff. Um, 
And then, other than that, um, I also used a triathlon wetsuit and an Xterra wetsuit. I am not sponsored by Xterra. Um, and uh, something that I think a lot of people forget about is a windbreaker. Um, I used my windbreaker back from our Merrill days, um, which is... Some people get super nice windbreakers. Um, I believe in essentially just a plastic sheet, a glorified plastic sheet, because you're going to be getting in and out of water. You're going to get super wet. Um, you really want the windbreaker for the windbreaker qualities. You don't want the windbreaker for any non-windbreaker qualities. You have the wetsuit for that. Um, so that worked out pretty nice for us. Yeah. You all got your gear covered. You all sound like you know what you're doing for a few years now. Um, so you mentioned it earlier, and I think I'm always curious for teams, when you're running with someone and you push each other your pace and your strategy and you have different highs and lows, are you guys personally, are you all talkative when you're running? And do you all tell jokes to one another? Do you sing to one another? What's going on when it's the two of you all and none of us get to see it? <laughs> I think it's surprisingly unexciting. A lot of times we're separated. But, on course, happens on course. Like, we, I want to know. Give me some dirty details. <laughs> so, like, I, I think a lot of times we're actually separated by, you know, 10 to 50 feet because we're trying to maintain the, the fastest pace possible. So a lot of times we're actually not standing right next to each other. So we'll we'll pass people and someone will be like, hey, Dr. Red Tights, where'd Evan go? And then I'd be like, I'm right here, <laughs> like jogging up behind or vice versa, you know. So, but you know, I'd say in the middle of the night when our pace slowed a little bit more, I tried to stick together a little bit more just to, uh, you know, make sure we're both doing all right. And I don't know. We just kind of talk about whatever, OCR, gossip, um, I don't, it's 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 like it's like the same thing that goes on inside your brain, except now there's someone there to share it with. So when you're doing endurance racing, any yeah. good gossip to share? <laughs> I don't think so. Wesley, uh, do you remember? I don't even remember any. I don't even remember what we talked about. <laughs> uh, we have certain theories about certain people that have certain problems. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> that's true. Uh, and we have theories about like. We talked a lot of strategy as well. Yeah. Of, um, like, the Golden Carabiner, we talked about saving it for the worst time of night. Um, we, when we came up on decisions, we, would, we could talk through it, and we would have slightly different opinions of saying, like, well, I think this, I think that. Um, one thing we talked about um, more at length was uh, Leap of Faith. Uh, we talked about the upgraded version of, uh, King of, of Funky Monkey that got you a Golden Carabiner. Um, Leap of Faith had that upgraded version from, like, 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. We can't describe it because we never saw it. Um, at that point, we knew we were, like, two laps ahead a second, and we were in something like fifth or seventh individually. Um, so the risk of take going to through the gauntlet and through Block Nest Monster, getting super wet to try to see what Leap of Faith was like, was, um, we thought, higher than the reward of getting the Golden Garabiner. So we took the electricity route, which allowed you to skip a number of obstacles. Um, the electricity route was the way to go. Like, if you were not taking the electricity route, I don't know what you were doing out there. Like, so <laughs> much faster. There was, like, three obstacles compared to, like, five or six. You didn't get wet. You know, the first electricity was ele electroshock therapy, which is eventually hanging wires. And I don't think I ever got shocked going through that. And I... <laughs> I've seen your post so, that, like, you didn't get shocked and you caused someone else, a very good friend, poor Ginger, to get so, electrocuted. So if you missed the post, so Adrian, out, we get to the, 
well, more on Adrian in a second, but we get to the electroshock the same time as Adrian. And, you know, I go through first, and she's, like, behind me, weaving her way through. And I'm like, what's taking so long? Like, just push all those blue wires out of the way. They're just ropes. They're just fake. And she's like, really? And she touches one and gets zapped. And she's like, ah, mother! You know, and I was like, oh, I don't... I still, that one. <laughs> I still think she, I still think she like touched the yellow one with her elbow at the same time or something. But yeah, I, I every time I went through that, I grabbed all those blue wires and I just tossed them out of the way because I I called their bluff. I was like, these are these are bullshit wires. I'm not I'm not fucking around with this. So, um, and then the other one was like a low crawl under wires, which again I don't even think it was on. Like I didn't see anyone get shocked at that. And then the final one was operation, uh, which we we all know I think. And I got shocked, I think, once during that because I was having some trouble getting the ring off. But, yeah. Yeah. Operation is you have a a long pole and you have a a hole in the wall that has metal around that hole. You have to get a, like, plastic band from the other side of the wall and bring it back. Um, If you mess up, you tend to hit the metal on that that hole in the wall and then you get shocked um, for people that have not done it before. Um, So... For people that weren't at Worlds, um, after 8 p.m., you had a Tough Mudder option in that they want you to overcome your fears, and a lot of people have fear of electricity because electricity is unpleasant. So they had a series of, like, five upper body intensive obstacles, including the Gauntlet and Leap of Faith and Black Nest Monster and Everest. Um, but after 8, you could opt to take the electricity, which is the route that we said. Um, and... If you opted to take that electricity, take that mental challenge, you got to skip all that other physical stuff. And we're like, we're tough. We can take it. And it it just, like, makes so much sense. And so um, that was for, talking strategies that y'all kind of figured out along the way, like, talking it through? Yeah. Yeah, um, we knew that one going in early. I, I mean, I, I'm competitive, right? My goal is to win. So I'm going to go with whatever is fastest, regardless of how painful it is. So I was like, before we went to the event, I was like, Wesley, if we need to, I'll just run through EST and just just stay right behind me and you will be fine. But you could weave your way through most of it without getting shocked or like low crawl under some of it. So yeah, it was not as bad as I expected uh, EST to it's be. Also, it's also a lot better when you're wearing neoprene. Oh, you have a, essentially a layer of rubber. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that makes it much better too. Very good. Yeah. Mental notes, keep that in mind. I don't know if I'll ever make it, but one day. Um, <laughs> so before we get into, like, wrapping up, I guess I, I want to ask, World's Toughest Mudder every year, you know, whether it's individual or team, obviously you guys are out there, the ones putting in the miles and the physical work, but your pit crew, I mean, essentially a lot of people attribute, you know, you can't get as far as you do without your crew and who you selected. So um, who, this is kind of a shout-out and a thanks, you know, who did y'all have for your pit crew, and was it the same crew y'all used last year? Evan, I know personally who your crew is, but always the same for you too, Wesley, and how how that play in for you guys this year? Um, so my crew, it has varied slightly. Um, my mother is a rock star with organizing things. She's a, a teacher by trade, um, so she is queen of putting things in order and getting them done and thinking about, like, oh, he's going to need this. Um, she is great at anticipating my needs of, like, certain times of night. It's like, he's probably going to need this, or it sounds like he'll need this, um, before I ask for it. 
and that's as much as you will ask for anything in a pit crew. Um, my dad um, takes a whole bunch of pictures and also helps my mom do all those things. Um, he is very good for figuring out like where we are in the leaderboard and where other people are um, and helping for organizing other things and talking with other people to see, like, oh, we're out of this. Can I get this from another source? Um, so my parents have been, like, my rock in terms of pit crew. Um, previously, I had my wife um, be pit crew or some friends be pit crew um, who have also been really good at it. Um, we have an 18-month-old, so my wife was home in Los Angeles staying very warm this year. <laughs> <laughs> good for her. Smart woman. <laughs> Yeah, so my pit crew was my dad. He was the one handling most of the, the things. And, again, I, I basically do the same thing every lap, so he's pretty good about – I mean, he, he knows what I need because I essentially lay it all out ahead of time, so it's, it's super easy. And he's got, like, this fishing vest where he carries essentially, like, all my extras, so, like, extra hat or extra buff or extra gels or whatever. So if I come into the pit and I want something that I didn't specify the lap before, he typically has it on him. And then I also had my wife out there who was simultaneously taking care of me and taking care of my daughter, who was also out there. So my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter spent the night in the tent at, like, 32 degrees. She made it all right. My wife, my wife spent most of the night uh, actually in the tent with her, you know, because when it's that cold, you typically wake up pretty frequently. So she's a little trooper, and, um, I mean, a lot of that's just morale. Like, seeing them on each lap is... Big morale boost for me, but yeah, I mean, Picker is huge, absolutely um, for all. I mean, my dad and my wife have been there for pretty much every, either both of them or one of them has been there for every ultra OCR I've done ever. Which is, I mean, again, I could not physically could not be, I would not work without them. It'd be a disaster. So, well, um, big thanks from me to your crew because I was rooting for y'all to get first, and it happens with them, even though y'all didn't spend much time with them in the pit. <laughs> So, um, I guess let's talk briefly next year, World's Toughest Mudder. They announced it way earlier. They didn't want people to wait that it is returning to Atlanta for 2019. So, um, thoughts on that? I mean, y'all like the venue. Y'all obviously won. So, have y'all already discussed? And can you spoiler alert for us? Are y'all going to go back and defend that championship spot? Or are y'all not going to team and go out with a win? (laughs) We'll see. I mean, so the the one interesting part is so they changed the toughest mudder. It was eight hours. Now it's going to be twelve. So they have a twelve hour comp four twelve hour competitions leading up to the main event, twenty four hours in Atlanta. And one of the things they changed about toughest is there's individual, and then there, now there's team options for toughest, but it's not team pairs like we did. It's team relay. So there's a four man relay and a two man relay option. And I wonder if they're leaning towards getting rid of the team division altogether. That's kind of my concern. Um, assuming they do have it, you again, we'll make the call a couple months out, like we did this year. Basically, making sure you know, make sure we're both in good health, make sure we're both feeling good, and um, yeah, we'll kind of kind of make a you know last minute call. That's my opinion. I would love to team up again, but I also you know, there's there's aspects of both you know running individual appeals, but also. You know, the teammate, the two teams we've done have been a ton of fun, and obviously we did real well, and um, yeah, that's cool too. <laughs> yeah, I think my opinion is that for the toughest matters, um, I said this before, um, I am not interested in a relay. Um, I think both of our strengths is the longer and suckier you make it, the better that we will do. 
Agreed. Um, and relay introducing rest and increasing the speed that you run when you're actually running um, is something that I think plays to other people's fortes, does not play to my forte. So for toughest mutters, I probably will be at Vegas, um, which is um, soon after my birthday, November 19th, uh, October 19th. Um, my birthday is the 16th. Um, so I will probably be running individual there. And then um, as long as they have the team division and both of us are healthy, I think we have shown that we are strong two years in a row, um, and we won this year, so we sort of will be the team to beat. So as long as we feel like we can have a consistent uh, amount of quality that we've shown the last two years, um, I'll probably be making an argument to do it again. Um, oh, Tough yeah. Mudder will always have their own little things of figuring out, do they still want the classic team where you stay together the whole time? I think the classic team is like the epitome of what Tough Mudder is and teamwork and camaraderie. And That's a good point. Suffering I'm right through. Into the 24 hours, like you said, y'all both need to be out there for the 24 hours rather than someone hanging out. <laughs> I mean, not that that's yeah. what it is, but like, it's the mentality behind it. Yeah. And yeah. y'all need to do it because now I think that this is, I mean, you did second place last year, first place this year, and then not that the other teams weren't awesome competition because they were, but now I'm ready to see you guys go back with like a target on your back and have some like, another awesome guy team, and then y'all just dominate again, and yay. <laughs> <laughs> Might be biased, everybody. Sorry. A little biased host here. <laughs> but is there anything, I mean, did we cover the event well? What have I missed, guys? Being being your host, I think y'all told us so much awesomeness. It was sounding like a great event for you guys. I've never been more impressed with the Tough Mudder community than I was at this World's Toughest Mudder. Like, it got cold and pretty miserable in the middle of the night. And, like, I would pass people that I recognize all the time. Um, and just seeing them out there kind of just braving the cold and kind of putting one foot in front of the other kind of was – it was great. It was really inspiring. And, you know, with Vegas – I mean, Vegas was windy and, you know, you needed a wetsuit and stuff like that too. But not cold like it was at Atlanta. So I was just kind of real impressed with the community as a whole. And, you know, seeing people at these Monday brunch, you know, standing up proud of their accomplishment, whether it was like 25 or 50 miles or 75 or 100 for uh, Chris and Trevor, you know, that was just, it was just super cool. And they do, Tough Mudder does a really good job with that brunch. You know, the, it's called the Champions Brunch and they recognize the podium winners, but they do a lot more than that. You know, they talk about what's coming in 2019. They talk about mistakes they made and they kind of owned up to that, which was kind of cool. You know, to be really transparent like that. And then they also did community awards. So people who embody the Tough Mudder spirit, which was, you know, I mean, that took as long as the, the Champions Awards, which, again, I thought really kind of speaks to their their brand and being, like, true to who they say they are, which I thought was really cool. Well, Evan, that reminds me with the community talk because with the fact that Wesley lives West Coast and, Evan, you're pretty central, but... You run a lot, I'd say, between us and CGG, run Midwest to East Coast a lot more. Um, do you think with the being in Atlanta, you obviously saw your regulars that are always going to be part of World's Toughest Mudder, whether it's anywhere or not. Um, did you recognize or see a lot more there in Atlanta of, like, athletes that you've seen at your general year-round races that aren't normal well, Tough Mudder people, if that makes sense, because it was a new venue, like, people on this side that – normally wouldn't do Vegas, but came because it was close, like, th that you recognized, I feel. I mean, I feel like there'd be a lot more people, kind of, that you recognized. 
Not not really. I think because if if Toughest Mudder, if the you know the eight hour series, they hadn't done it uh, nationwide the last two years, I think I would have said yes to that question. But because of Toughest Mudder, I I can't tell who is a East Coast person and who's a World's Toughest person anymore. You know, so yeah. that's awesome. <laughs> I, in talking to people during registration, um, I was seeing that there was a lot of first timers, and it was first timers from around the country. Um, I think people try the toughest and think that that's a, a fun idea, and then they see the challenge of the 24 and say that would be something that would really give it's everything that I can do to try to go through that, um, and it's a good experience. Um, as cold as it was and as much props that I will give to anyone who did not take a lot of pit break but overnight, that was a crazy time. Um, I think there's a lot of people that were new that we might not have necessarily talked to that I think were locals, but it's hard to know. And I'll also say this. In the middle of the night, so, you know, if you hit, whatever, 30 for male or 25 for female at a toughest mud or the eight-hour race, you got a different colored bib than if you were if you just signed up. The number of people I saw out in the middle of the night with essentially the white bibs, the non-contender bibs, was high. It was higher than I saw elite bibs, higher than I saw contender bibs. So, I, I mean, I, I, what I really liked about the event is it really kind of spoke to, you know, who's toughest across the board. You know, the – I mean, I'm, I'm sure if you actually kind of start scrolling through those results, you'll see some people who are beating people who are – like exponentially better athletes than them simply because they didn't give up and they kept putting one foot in front of the other even though obstacles were freezing. I like it. The community is growing, the sport's growing, and I think that right there, that statement kind of shows that there's different levels and it's still good to see everybody come together. Um, but looking at the clock, everybody, we have done a good job of filling up this time on World Stuff is Modern 2018. But because I'm asking questions, I'm going to throw this out there because I've missed it and I've been absent from the podcast. I know Evan started it, and I don't know if he's keeping it up, but we're going to do it anyways, that when there's a guest, he started this little fun thing where, um, Wesley, we tell a random fact that people don't know about you or something that's, like, not obvious to guess. So we're going to do a roundtable of everybody's got to share. It can be something silly, lame, stupid, serious, whatever. you got to come up with a random fact to share with everybody listening. So, Evan, you get to go first. <laughs> All right. Um, I will go with so – when I was in high school, I was obsessed with the character Green Lantern. So, like, I used to wear a Green Lantern ring around all the time, and, like, that's kind of what I was known for in high school. So whenever there would be, like, a Green Lantern reference on TV, people would, like – I would start getting phone calls, and people started telling me about it at school. And, uh, you know, this there's a lot more merchandise now than there used to be. And so, like, I just had – at one point, I had, like, every Green Lantern action figure, which was, like, five – and um, I had the entire series from, like, Series 3 and stuff like that. So really big into the comic book. When the movie came out, all my friends were real excited, and so was I. And then everyone thinks the movie's terrible. I think it's okay. But one of the things I really like about <laughs> – <laughs> I thought it was just cool to see that character on screen. One of the things I really like about Green Lantern is his powers, right? So to, to be selected for a Green Lantern, which is essentially like an international or intergalactic police officer or security officer or whatever you want to call him – you have to be totally fearless and um, completely honest. Those are the only two qualifications. And his his Aww. his um, his superpower, which is the ring, is actually based on willpower. So if you can will it to happen, it it will happen, right? Like you know, you create a essentially a construct that can attack the enemy. So even though he was like my 
kind of like my what? That Evan is the Green Lantern. Yeah, exactly. So and that's why, like, even though like I, you know, I liked him growing up. Like, I still think he's cool because of that willpower thing. And you know, if you if you're paying attention to what I do in ultra sports, like that's like I I 100% believe that's true. So yeah, that's my fact. Oh, the cool fact. Um, uh, Wesley, do you have one yet, or do you, do I need to go to give you more time? No, uh, I got one. All right. Um, so it is well known that I'm an actual doctor. Um, from Dr. Redditz. Um What is less known is what I study. Um, one of the things that I do a lot of research on and work on treating is people that have seizures that are not due to epilepsy. Um, they tend to be people that manifest um, psychological challenges as physical symptoms, and that physical symptom is seizure, um, which tells you a lot about how the mind can take control of the body in ways that can be pathological. Um, and I do a lot of things in this um, endurance events to try to see what can I use my mind to make my body do better. Um, so it's a nice little parallel that I actually work on these things um, professionally as well. Good one. Interesting. Brenna, what do you got? Oh, man. Well, y'all's are all, like, serious and cool. Mine's more comical and lame. (laughs) (laughs) Comical and lame is fun. So, um, I will admit I am 31 years old, and I still, to this day, with all my travels and trips I take on the airplane, hotels, car, at home, I sleep every night with a teddy bear and a blanket, and it's not like, a body blanket. I have a baby blanket that I've had for. Um, <laughs> so this one I've had for like 15 years. It's still all together, but um, I had one previous from when I was a baby, and I basically like wore it out. And I had this one on backup, and when my other one was wearing out, I had to start washing this one to get it soft and worn before I'd sleep with it. But I still sleep with it, and I have a backup for when it wears out. <laughs> so my security blanket. And my teddy bear, his name is Oatmeal, and he squeaks when you push on his belly, and he has a ribbon around his neck, and I've had him since I was, like, five. I got him for Christmas, and I travel with both and sleep with both, and I've been made fun of by boyfriends and significant others, and they just are told, tough shit, deal with it. (laughs) Nice. Like, it's sad, but it's, it's, I'll cry and, like, have a panic attack if I don't have them, probably, so... There you go. Thirty-one years old, everybody. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Moving on. <laughs> awesome. Let's uh, let's do final shout-outs and to sponsors and anyone else we want to give a shout-out to. So uh, Wesley, you're up first. Um, so I mentioned Marina Sports. Marina Sports is awesome. Uh, Doctor Red Tights for twenty percent off. Um, I also get uh, support from Trail Toes and uh, some support from Goat Tough as well. Um, and I like to raise money for the Epilepsy Foundation and uh, Athletes versus Epilepsy. Um, my research is seizures, so I like to support the people that have them. Very awesome. Can I ask what um, Goat Tough, I see it all the time, and I see it especially around Tough Mudder. Is Goat Tough a team or a company, or what is Goat Tough, if you don't mind me asking? Good question. Um, Goat Tough is more of a brand at this point. Um, Jim Campbell has created it. Um, he has some apparel and things that, um, he will give to, um, top athletes and he will sell it, um, to other people. Um, it's his sort of 
policy of he went through a, a ridiculous car accident where they weren't sure if he was going to walk, um, and then he has trudged through it, and he has done some pretty amazing things since then. Um, so he believes in, like, no day wasted, so always trying to go out there, be positive, and get things done in a good way. Um, so that's sort of how that works. Awesome. Well, thank you. Cool. Evan, who's your shout-out? Uh, well, first, definitely got to sh- give a shout-out to Atomic. We obviously talked about them a lot at the beginning of the episode, but thanks for yep. sponsoring us for World's Toughest Motor. That was awesome, and I love their stuff. Uh, Hammer Nutrition, obviously, for fueling me. Mudwing Guides Ultra OCR Revival, if you liked what you've heard and you want to know more. Wesley's interviewed in the back, so pick up that book, available on the Team Strength Speed website, also available on the CTG Pro Team website. Go check out Obstacle Running Adventures. Me and Wesley were both interviewed on their last two podcasts covering World's Toughest Mudder. Uh, just me for the pre-episode and both Wesley and I for the post-episode. So go check out uh, Mike Stefano and Caitlin Ritter's podcast there. And other than that, a couple of cool stories from this weekend and from actually from recently. You know, people come up to me occasionally and say thank you for the book or, you know, I really like the podcast. And I just wanted to say really appreciate it. Had one of the guys from the UK come up from Sam. His name's Sam. He was like, you know, I read your book. And then, like, so I'm standing next to Ryan Atkins. He's like, I read your book. He's like, and then I started following you on social media. And now here I am. And that was just, like, one of the coolest things I heard all weekend. You know, the fact that, like, someone, like, some of the some of the effort and things you've done. And now there's, like, someone's physically standing there holding, like, their brown bib or something like that. That was pr- pretty cool. Also had uh, one of the guys named Jamie at OCRWC say he used, like, my training plan to qualify for the world championships, which is also really cool. Um, and then had another guy just message me the other day, Nathan, talking about how he reads the book for inspiration. So um, definitely appreciate those messages, and I get them, I wouldn't say all the time, I get them occasionally. Uh, I usually don't give shout-outs to them, but uh, definitely want to say thank you for anyone, if you've ever said anything like that to me at any point um, in my racing career here. I think that is... It. Oh, and then finally, uh, we didn't talk about the individual winners on this podcast. Uh, Chris Mendoza, Trevor Sykos in second, Jesse Bruce in third. And then for the ladies, um, Rhea Koble repeated her win from last year. Uh, Aaron Roast, Air Force Active Duty. Aaron, Roast, Roast. Aaron Roast. Sorry. They, they kept saying Roast at the, um, at the awards thing. So I, I keep thinking that, even though it's clearly spelled Roast. And then Allison Ty, another podium finisher, which is like her fourth or fifth. I can't even keep count at this point at World's Toughest. So uh, go check out World's Toughest Mudder. It's going to be on CBS December 1st. I don't think we'll get any airtime. We might be in the background of some shots, maybe crossing the finish line. Uh, but I'm pretty sure they're going to focus on the individual race because it was super close and it's going to make for some great TV, especially with the uh, conditions and the, the course in general. So... Check that out. All right, I'm done running my mouth. My daughter. You're good. My daughter wants to go you. watch the Christmas tree light up. What uh, What do you got, Brenna? Um, real quick, I'm just one of my um sponsors from Conquer Gauntlet Pro Team. A shout out to Compex. Um, I've been using. It's a company that provides and makes um muscle stimulators units, and I've been using mine a lot. They have um the one I have has a tens unit built in with it. So, um, with all my travels, been putting the pads and using it a lot on my back. Um, the muscle stimulator is great to kind of help warm up your muscles and get ready for, like, a good event, good race, good workout. Um, I love it. It's great for traveling, compact, put it in my bag, and just take it on the go with me. 
So thank you, Complex, for taking care of myself and the team with those. And I'll piggyback on Evan's shout-out to those that show their appreciation, um, whether it be me for media coverage that I do, people saying, like, thanks for doing that, but mainly to Evan because I appreciate everything he does for us on the Concrete Gauntlet Pro team and basically the entire OCR community. So anybody that gives Evan props and tells him in person how awesome this stuff is, thank you because I agree and I can only tell him but so much myself. So... On that note, thanks for letting me host tonight, guys, and ask questions and hear all about your awesome adventures on World's Toughest Matter. And I think that wraps up this episode, guys. Wesley, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. All right, we'll catch you later. Bye, guys.